The creators of this podcast documentary series would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this project was made. This program may contain names, images or voices of deceased persons. When we first arrived, there was a couple of car batteries, two panels. We could run one light after dark or a laptop. Couldn't run both at the same time. That's, it was very, very primitive. And we were sitting in that cabin with the mosquitoes attacking us and animals ro- crawling through thinking, yeah, this is really hard. This is, this is very challenging. We were, you know, um, hauling water and all those basic things that you take for granted in the city They just weren't in place here, so we started to rebuild what we really felt we needed. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. This is Maori, and if you really like these episodes and you would like us to share more stories, I want to ask you for your support. This is an independent project, and we have way more stories to come, and we have heaps of footage that are going to make a documentary, but we need heaps of funds for that. So if you like to contribute, you can jump on the website and make a donation, which is ysdm.au. If you feel that you can't afford to make a donation now, you can just share it with a friend or in social media. Don't forget to subscribe to our channels, follow the podcast in your favorite platform, and also give five-star rating. It's really important to us. Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy the episode. As an artist, I want to tell stories about nature in nature and for nature. But I have realized that being behind the camera isn't enough. I want to get my hands dirty. That's how this podcast documentary series came to life. We're not only learning from our mentors. Together, we're also committing to an action that gives back to Earth. Or how I like to say, a la pacha. My name is Mauri, and this is Environment Art Stories. your daughter ginger because she's probably the one that made our connection happen so the day i met jane we met camping in a permaculture gathering and she camped next to me and she came and talked to me and she said my oldest daughter packed my tent forgot the pegs so do you have any pegs around that i can borrow And that's how we met. And yeah, I feel that we got really well with each other from the very beginning. I felt that we connected a lot and we had fun. And then Jane became kind of like my veggie master of men- or mentor. A couple of months happened, it passed. And one day Jane sent me a message. She was wondering if I wanted to come to Woof at her place, do some gardening, keep learning about plants and permaculture, work together. And I came. And since that day, I'm, I'm living here where we are sitting now. And that brings me to the point where I would like to acknowledge traditional custodians of this land, which is Gabi Gabi, 
Kabi Kabi people. And also acknowledge other custodians of this land, like the Kukibaras, Wumpus, Bushtekis, and the amount of wildlife that walks through this bush is just unbelievable. And I feel that they're the true custodians of this land, the animals that live here, snakes, birds, wallabies, insects. So I would like to acknowledge that as well. So my first question would be, how you came with the decision of moving from the big city to the middle of the bush and how that happened. Okay, there was push factors and pull factors at play. So this is Sydney when I was in my mid to late 20s and my favourite, it was a movie at the time. I then went on to read the book, but it was a book by Peter Carey. It was called Bliss. And it's set in a rainforest with a counterculture story about a community. And then it had a big impact on me. And then we, we, some of my friends were all feeling that Sydney was not the place that we wanted to make our future. So I started pioneering out further and further from Sydney until circumstances led us to visit this intentional community and I was sitting on the deck with a friend much like this and said, this just reminds me of my favourite book, Bliss by Peter Carey. And he said, well, Peter Carey used to live here in the community and it was a big factor for writing this book was his experiences of this community. And it just was one of those thunk moments where you realise that this is really important. This is a really interesting synchronicity and if we have an opportunity to make a life here in this part of the world, that's what we're going to try and do. How was your life before that? Were you a gardener? Were you, what were you doing in the city? Yeah, I've always been a plant person, plant lover. Always kept living things around in my space and some edible stuff as, as much as my space would allow. So it was a balcony garden in Sydney on the sixth floor of the apartment building I lived in. And um, it was wanting to have more bird sound, less pollution, less graffiti, less traffic, um, wanted more space. That was the real push to leave the city. Just I, I remember one particular moment I was standing out of the front of my office building where I was a graphic designer and... Um, we were on a break and this council guy came along with this huge big tractor along the pavement and he had this huge tank of toxic chemicals and there was a dandelion poking out of the pavement, a tiny little crack in the pavement and he came along and just went and just completely nuked it and so then you have a dead dandelion out the front mm-hmm. and just kept on up the street doing that and that was one of those Again, those moments were like, I, I think I need to go somewhere where things can just live, you know. There's not that level of control and toxic solutions to dandelions, among other weeds, you know. But it was too much. That was a real turning point. It was like, i got to get out of this place. It's mad. 
Man. So how do you get it? You get here. Stages. Slow. We, we, we can see now in the videos and in the action that we've been doing this morning, um, the beautiful house that you built with your family, um, the beautiful gardens, how everything has been so taken care of, the bush that surrounds the place. Mm. But I imagine then when you came here like 20 years ago, how how was it? like? Yeah, well, it was a vision had been begun. So it was already an intentional community. So we were jumping into something that was established. The woman that sold this block of land to us had a, she was really quite an altruistic person and she didn't want to be swayed by real estate forces. She wanted a young family to be able to come here and live. So she was, she wasn't in it for the money. She told us numerous times about the reasons she planted different fruit trees here. We heard the stories of all these established trees around us that she put in. And then we built upon that with more fruit trees based on her starting point. So it was overgrown. It had had tenants here for over a decade, if not longer. And it was a sub-community within the bigger community of Starlight. So there was quite a lot of satellite dwellings around in the, that have been completely taken over by the jungle again now. There was teepee over here, a caravan and a central cooking house. So it, there's quite a history of community gatherings here. So we, we made the place as comfortable as we could in the short term and worked out what we needed to do to raise our family and then slowly started designing and then building the main house, which is extremely comfortable for this environment now. Based on the, the discomfort we were experiencing in a little cabin down in this corner of the block. So it was dark, it was damp, couldn't store things. Um, animals would just walk straight through, which I love. I love living as if my life is a safari, but it, it is challenging. So we wanted to keep the mosquitoes out. That's a big thing. Rodents we wanted to keep out of the house and therefore snakes. So You had a python. We you had didn't. a python regularly in the kitchen <laughs> and goannas climbing up on the bench to eat the eggs and, you know, we, we've, tr we've tried um, to live and let live in our approach, I suppose, so that we, we're living in comfort and they're living in comfort and we're not having to remove anything deliberately from our space. So, yeah. What's the meaning of off-grid? Because this is an off-grid. It is. It's an off-grid, solar-powered community. So it means that we're not connected to any main services. So the electricity power lines don't run out to this valley. So we all, as a community, long before I've been involved in Starlight, decided that they wanted to be autonomous in their power supply and their water supply. There's no mail. There's no um, rubbish collection or anything like that. So um, we... We took the opportunity to learn about solar power and um, sustainable methods of dealing with our water and our grey water and it means that you have a higher level of control over those things without being connected to main services. So it, it comes with the responsibility of being the maintenance for all of those things for each household, which can be stressful and expensive at times, but uh, I, I love it this way. So the water you get is water from the rain? Yep. The energy that you get is from the sun. Yep. There's no pipes either. So there's no septic system. No septic. So how does it work? So With the toilets, for example. Okay, so we had the opportunity because there wasn't any infrastructure here when we moved in. There was a, a pit toilet with a it's sort of like a barrel toilet, which wasn't wasn't all that unpleasant to use, but we upgraded it to something that we were more comfortable with, like I explained 
less insects, less smell, no smell and no insects ideally, and we have, we're there now. And so we use the human manure that we gather and we process it into beautiful soil fertility for our fruit trees and our veggie gardens. So the idea is that we would create a closed loop system that supports our needs, doesn't create any waste, keeps our water supply for drinking and irrigation, and um, we don't add it to our human manure. And then we just carry on with recycling the rape, the wastewater from the house down into the fruit garden orchard. So all these things that we have picked up from reading Earth Garden magazine and Down to Earth magazine and um, getting involved in the permaculture movement in this part of Queensland and Australia and, and just continuously learning and, and trialling. So really this place gave us the opportunity to experiment with things that um, because there was nothing here already. So it was a very primitive lifestyle on this block of land when we arrived and we've, we've done what we needed to make ourselves comfortable. Coming back to the point you mentioned, you said gathering our human year. Mm. Like um, I'm thinking there may be a lot of people that don't know what's that. Well, they probably know, but they haven't heard that term. How do you gather your human year, like in a practical way? Okay, so the term humanure was created by Joseph Jenkins because there was really no term for um, processing and seeing value in human waste. So poo, wee, toilet paper and carbon material. So that humanure is uh, what I call the nutrient base that we recover from our own poo, basically. So what it does, it cycles and changes the headspace that this is a waste product that should be sent away somewhere to be dealt with by other people. And then it becomes something that we manage on site and then reap the benefits of. So, mm. yeah. So you basically what you do, you create that waste and you turn it into a resource. That's right. Because you turn compost it. Into it. Soil. Yeah. And mm. that's all you reuse it in your gardens. Yeah, that's right. So instead of keeping cattle or buying in manures or any kind of fertility aids, we do it all on site with our highly nutritious poo. And it's way, well, I've been practicing it. I've been doing it for a couple of months now. And I feel it's like really simple, really easy. Is approved by council? Mm-hmm. Yep. So if you have a system that is approved, you can actually do it in anywhere? Councils vary, but um, the Sunshine Coast Council, where we're a part of, they've got several systems for human manure that are approved. Yeah. And it's clean. It's, it's and not complex. you don't pollute complex. the water. You, you're it's, not contaminating any water. Yeah. And you're actually keeping your shit together. It's a bit of a game changer, really, for, for land fertility, I find. And I just think it, it touches on a deeper level about really connecting and dealing with the things that we are doing to this planet. So that's one very simple everyday way that we could be restoring, becoming part of a restorative practice on the land, you know, not seeing anything that we don't like as a problem to be discarded or removed from our environment immediately, which is a very human philosophy, which I, mm. I'm interested to challenge. Yeah, because this this wet system of septic systems, mm. like modern ones, mm. This was created a couple of hundred years ago. Like humans were not doing that before that. So there's something about that. It just seems weird. Like just collect our it's, human manure and just mix it with water and just... Waste it. 
yeah, just waste it and make someone Tricky. else responsible for that. Mm. It is relatively a common, a new, newer philosophy that, you know, about two to 300 years in Western culture, we've been starting to add water to poo, which yeah. a lot of, um, there, there is a rich history of other communities and cultures around the world who have been using human manure for soil fertility. So mm-hmm. there is a legacy of knowledge there and there's different cultural practices around how to handle it. So it's of optimum use. So. Yeah. So for the people that is listening to this podcast right now, we also did an action this morning. So we were helping Jane to build a compost stage. So basically where we can deposit the poo and paper and carbon material and then just leave it there for a couple of months, get to a certain temperature, and then they'll pre- basically get microbes inside worms. They're going to decompose the material and they're going to create soil. So if you want to look how that soil looks like, just get into the webpage and get into the links that we're going to provide down mm. in the description and check it out. It's just pure soil because people get a bit yucky. Like, yeah, oh. there's a lot of psychology around handling human manure, yep. really. And it it's very deeply layered how we feel about our excrement, I suppose, if you want to call it excrement. You know, yeah. it's... Yeah, it's rich. It's rich and complex, our philosophy around it. But I really love turning that on its head and seeing it as valuable. Valuable, yeah. It just goes into your gardens. Yeah. And then you grow food and then you eat it again. Mm. Slope. Yeah. 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 And that's the real driving factor for wanting to be motivated to keep your human urine process it, is that you really see the nutritional benefits and you see how it impacts in the nutrients of your food. And then that's, again, you know, you can see how the cycle is closing up with being able to grow more nutrient-dense food with the resources available. So that's what appeals to me, I think, probably more than anything. That's pretty cool. Well, today we planted some plants as well. We planted a garden bed and we used rainforest soil mixed with compost soil and human use soil. So let's see how it goes there for a couple of months. Mm. But you had proof I've used it for years. Yeah. yeah. And I'm very careful with it. You know, I, you know, I, I, I try to adopt a best practice with using human manure and, you know, handling it. And the system that we've developed has minimal amount of turning of soil or flipping piles and piles of, of material. And it's, you know, if Jenkins's method is followed carefully as we're trying to do here, it's going to be great. It's less labor. It all the soil really processes it itself itself. So you have contact with the soil underneath where you're processing the human manure and you just let nature take over. So you use the metaphor of a forest system again, as you do in other syntropic systems, and you just really draw on the fungus and the microbes that are currently present in the soil already. And um, you let them take over and do it for you. So you just design the system and then create all the favorable aspects that are needed and then away you go. So it's very low tech and we've made it as easy as possible so that it's a, it's not an unpleasant part of our routines on the property and um, the benefits speak for themselves. Like we really, really confident using it now for all kinds of food production. So that food production is really the crucial step to motivating people for human manure, increasing soil fertility. That's the most important factor. Mm. So I know, because I know you, that you're a teacher, you're a veggie patch expert. You're not, you're 
crafty person as well. You're really talented with your arms and fingers and hands. And but you're also a mom. So you're a mom of three kids. And I would like to know a bit more about that process of raising kids here in the middle of the bush, like in a completely off-grid place where you have to manage and maintain the place every day. How's that been? Yeah, well, we we started pioneering out here into the wilderness. It felt like at times before we got before we had three children, we had one when we moved here. Ginger was one. Um, this this part of Queensland really opened up lots of new opportunities for us. So we were able to find home birth midwives, and we had three children born at home. And we educated ourselves, like in all things to do with leaving society behind a little bit. Um, moving off grid also involved that home birth decision making as well. And I have full respect for the medical profession and hospitals in general for when they're necessary. But I felt for me in context of birth that I wanted to be somewhere where I felt safe and I felt well cared for and that was home. So we had the opportunity here to touch base and engage three different midwives for the three different pregnancies. And they all had amazing skill sets, a variety of skill sets, all very different approaches and philosophies, but each brought exactly what we needed for each pregnancy. So um, I wanted to have somebody skilled and trained with us to have a baby at home. I wanted to have my medical care tailored for me and that was an option that was available to me at the time so I really hope that that's going to be available for young women in Australia going forward it's a very difficult profession to put yourself in to be a midwife in these mm. days um, but you know we had very courageous very um, forthright and skilled women help us with that so it's about self-empowerment a, a large part too so that is, again, where it ties in with this general life philosophy, I suppose, that we, we take on the risks and we educate ourselves and then armed with what, we, what we've gathered, then we go forward and just give it a go. Mm. So I had very uncomplicated pregnancies and I had easy after processes with the kids and then they just learned to run naked and barefoot in this environment mm -hmm. until they were ready to mix with everyone else. So they don't have that... And it, their, their childhood is fairly traditional, except that they were brought up in this environment. Mm -hmm. They mixed with school and soccer clubs and, you know, the things that they were interested in, yeah. they've, they've, they've integrated with the larger world and they're very curious about cities and what goes on in the world, but they've, they've, they've had this in their early days. Quick intervention to all the women that are interested in learning more about permaculture. Jane will be teaching in the Change Makers Women's PDC in November this year, happening in Crystal Waters, Queensland, Australia. So if you're interested, just go into her site and send her a message. It'll be awesome. So we live, it's, this place is pretty close to the ocean. Like it's pretty close to another town. It's not like in the middle of nowhere. But it feels like in the middle of nowhere. Mm. You can barely hear any car here. A couple of planes from time to time. And how's your personal projects been since you decided to move here, become a mother? 
Because I know you are like, you're a craft person as well. Hmm. Well, I, I've always had an unconventional work path. Like I've worked freelance and got comfortable with that in Sydney doing graphic design based stuff and design stuff generally. And then I had the opportunity out here to try and sculpt jobs around the family. So while the house was being built, I was primarily the child, child wrangler. So I would be the one doing meals and laundry and kids and stuff while Alex was building the house. And that went on for a number of years. It was about nine years it took us mm. to build the house. And in that time I developed, I mean, the luxury of this place, one of the many luxuries of living here is that there is space. So I had a studio mm. and I was working with Clay through that time and taking part-time jobs or um, seasonal work. You know, I was doing, I still do a little bit of events work. So the work kind of flows around the lifestyle here. So I've probably been more home-based the last few years mm. rather than out in the world earning money. And my dream is to continue to have home-based income from the property. So mm -hmm. the tile-making was a good one. I, I really love the solitude and I was working in complete isolation and making something I was quite proud of and I did that for a long time. Um, and that's come to an end and now there's other opportunities. So permaculture is something I'm very passionate about and learning all the time more and more about and that is applicable to anywhere. So that that has wings, you know, there's plenty of scope for interesting future projects with that I really can see. So you mentioned Alex, mm. which is also responsible for building this beautiful place. Solely responsible for building. And who else participated in that process? Um, we had support from a couple of neighbours who would come in when needed and we had family support. So Alex's parents would come for a month at a time and help with either landscaping or construction of the house. Whatever we needed, they were very involved. Um, and we were hosts uh, for the Woofing Network, which you mentioned earlier, which is for willing workers on organic farms. So as a host, we would have people from all over the world come, skilled or unskilled. It's a cultural exchange, so they would be part of our family and eating with us and doing whatever we do, and they would support whatever we were doing on the land at the time. So funnily, that would work out to be just the perfect people for the perfect job quite often. So we had some rock climbers come and help with their climbing equipment when we were doing a crane job with the huge big poles for the ceiling beams and they were quite comfortable with ropes and heights and climbing and that was just amazing to watch them at work up there with the crane and everything. And it happened so many times that people would um, go back to their other lives having done a spell of woofing and they'd just be really um, fired up with all these new ideas that they'd learned from seeing lots of Australians do what they're doing on their land to try and be a bit more self-sufficient. I think we might have initially attempted to be self-sufficient, but it's a lot more challenging than we had first anticipated. So we're working towards it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're not fundamental about it. We're not fanatical, but we do what we can in that direction. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so we right now we're sitting on a table. We can appreciate the environment here, the trees, the food forest mini food forest that you're growing here, native species as well. But we also have next to us a caravan, which you can appreciate all the people who's been writing mm -hmm. names and drawings. So mm -hmm. all these people is the people that came here? Yep. Yeah. How many people around? Oh, I think uh, stop counting at about 30. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is some of them for three months at a time. So two weeks to three months. So yeah, lots of input. 
when we were doing the stone wall, which forms like the core of the the main house, we had, um, yeah, that was hard graft. So that mm. was a lot of rock work. So that that was about a dozen different woofers over over a year, probably two years to do the stone. Mm. And um, yeah, like a real debt of gratitude to all those people wherever they are out in the world now because mm. they were really a, a, a foundational part of what we were doing here and also raising the family as mm. well. We had a really good blend of people come and give ad- give energy to us. That's, I like to point that phrase that you just said, raising the family. Because you're not only challenging yourself to go into the middle of the bush, build the house, build gardens, make all this stuff happen, take care of the land where you live in, but also you have to raise kids. And send them to school or do homeschool. I don't know which case, what mm. yours. But that's why I wanted to have this podcast talk with you. Not only because you're my teacher and I learned so much from you, so I'm th- so thankful for that and thankful to be here. But I feel that there's always storytelling about how humans, females or males, build stuff and go through stuff and process. But Um, there's no much point of view in how women or mothers, which role or they or what the, which role they achieving in that kind of process. Mm. Because I see you every day. I see you every day raising kids, and there's the garden and the animals and the house and kids, and it's it's a constant thing. So it's possible. I admired that it's possible to do it here. People would choose to raise their kids in the city because. I probably think it's easier for them, mm. but it's possible to do it. Different opportunities. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's totally possible to raise kids out here. There's there's many families here. When when we first moved here, we were one of two families with kids, and then since then, there's been you know a massive influx of that younger generation with family raising times going on. So. Mm. Some of us sent our kids to the same local school. Some of them sent to the other one. Some of them kept their kids at home and did homeschooling. There was a really big blend. And I think with all families, that changes over the life of your kids as well. So you might try one approach for some of their childhood and then switch to another as, as needed. So again, like it, like you said, it feels like we're in the middle of nowhere, but we have got options for lots of stuff like that, choice of schools and um Yeah, choose the life of solitude or you're not that far from an airport. So we've got it, got it both. Which one was the most difficult challenge that you had to go through while living here? In the early days, we didn't have our solar panels um, as sophisticated as we do now. So it was learning to power down for the, the early years here. So when we first arrived, there was a couple of car batteries, two panels, We could run one light after dark or a laptop. Couldn't run both at the same time. That's, mm. It was very, very primitive. Mm. And we were sitting in that cabin with the mosquitoes attacking us and <laughs> animals ro- crawling through thinking, yeah, this is really hard. This is, this is very challenging. We were, you know, um, hauling water and all those basic things that you take for granted in the city They just weren't in place here. So we started to rebuild what we really felt we needed. And, you know, you, you see what a luxury hot water is and having a, you know, an indoor bathroom can be a really big luxury after not having an indoor bathroom. And, um, yeah, th- those early days were tough because we, 
we we hadn't really integrated with the rest of the community yet. So we didn't have that support network, but within a short amount of time, we were really linked with the neighbours. And although as a community, we do have a lot of space to do our own thing, we're not meeting as regularly as other communities, we still had that um, proximity to each other and that um, organic social network that we really knew who to draw on for help when needed. Mm-hmm. So natural disasters have been a factor of living at Starlight from the beginning and you really know who your friends are when those things happen and we have a really good support network amongst the community and the larger community of this area to help out when things are tough, like flooding, for example. You, you got flats here? Yeah, we've we li- lived, it's two causeways to get from town to our place. So they flood every wet season, they always have, but especially so this year. So we had a couple of families trapped in the middle island there for over a week. But generally we're prepared for that, you know. We we just get the provisions in and hope for the best. So Did you have fires? We haven't had too much of a problem with bushfires because this is quite um the the foliage is thick and damp. Gets broken down by fungus before it becomes fuel load. Yeah, so geographically we are kind of like in a valley. It's and wet. And we yeah. are in the, da- in the lower side of the valley next to a creek. Mm. I went for a walk. So the further up you go, it becomes more dry. Mm. And I think the potential fire is bigger up yeah. the hill, yeah. probably. Yeah. But here I feel it's kind of like a mixed rainforest and bush. Right? Yeah. There's never been serious bushfires here in this part of the world, luckily. No. But, you know, we live on... We live on hundreds of hectares of national park right next door. And mm-hmm. um, so what we've got is a fire brigade in the community. So mm-hmm. Alex and I are both active members and a lot of the other community volunteer as well. Mm-hmm. And we have our own shared and fire truck now, which took a long time coming. Mm-hmm. And then that's a way again, I guess, you know, the metaphor for saying the home birth was an empowering process in, as part of our lives. The fire brigade is that as well. It's like skilling up, having the resources and the skills necessary. So if it ever happened, we're in the best place to deal with that. So yeah, and I've learned through permaculture a lot about um, suitable plants for fire mitigation as well, which is helping. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, take the good with the bad and just yeah, I really pray that that will never happen. Mm-hmm. But we've got a fire truck and we know how to use it and we've got the skills, so hopefully we'd be... Have you ever had someone from Aboriginal communities doing some fire management here or that doesn't happen? No, that's... In my experience of knowing a little of both, it's still in very early days in this area. Mm-hmm. So I would love in my lifetime to see a lot more collaboration between the two groups. We collaborate as a Starlight community with the Rural Fire Service and National Parks. So there is collaboration that happens with equipment and skills and manpower on that level, but there's no Indigenous fire sticking that I'm aware of in this area. And Mm. the Rural Fire Service is a certain culture and they know the way that they want to fight fires and I don't know how open they are to new other ways, not not new ways, old ways, integrating with other systems. So I'm interested mm-hmm. in Indigenous methods of fire management, definitely. You mentioned community, you mentioned neighbours a lot, mm-hmm. but what I've realised that 
I can really hear anyone and or see anyone here. So this is a big, big, big patch of bush, right? So there's neighbors around, but I haven't noticed any fences. Mm. And I've noticed that people have cleared some area to build the constructions, which are pretty decent and pretty decent size. Like they're not like big things. Mm. And what's, do you have a pack? Because that's native bush. So I don't see anyone taking more bush like just because they're greedy. Yeah. How's that work? Okay, so Starlight is 50 years old now and the documents and the set of codes, I suppose, or rules that we all agreed to live by has been organically developed over that whole time. So it's changed a little bit in the 19, 20 years that we've been here, but most of it was in place before we arrived. So the idea is that you're here for the land and that you would have a clearing for your house site, but you're not going to uh, grow rows and rows of pineapples or run thousands of cattle on the land. So we have a no domestic animals policy, no fence policy, and general understanding of respect for the forest in which we choose to live. So, um, yeah, there's there's written documents. So there's, there's articles of association, we call them, and we have a it's like a code of conduct, I suppose, that we all agree to. Now, if somebody doesn't want to live by those rules, then there's not really an awful lot that we can do about it. But as an intentional community, we intend to get along. So it's not something that we always do, but we intend to. And that's the general common agreement that we all live by in this community, which works pretty well. Right. I mean, it's common sense, but it doesn't happen much. Mm. I don't know why humans, we have that tendency to just break the whole place and just clear everything mm. out and just like build things and great stuff and just forget and just mm. like he said they're still doing it I still walk sometimes on the coast and I see people spraying weeds yeah oh yeah it's gonna be the way and it's yeah 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 you can't fix everything but um look we've, we've got the opportunity here to live the way that we want and it's not something that everyone has a chance to do so I want to do it the best I can possibly do Hmm. Yeah. So it's not saying this is the right way yeah. or the only way. It's a way to yeah. to go ahead. So you've been showing us your veggie patch, mm. which looks beautiful. Um, you haven't used any product there. I don't use any bagged products. I, use, I sometimes buy sugarcane mulch and stuff like that, but I don't use fertilizer or blood and bone or anything like that. I haven't really needed to because I've really concentrated on developing soil. Hmm. So building soil from what's available, like you said, like, you know, we have, um, yeah, we've got all the materials here that we need. So again, that's a luxury of having the space to build bays for the compost toilet and for for the, the compost that we come out of the kitchen and, you know. What are the low points of living off grid? Like what happens when it's like cloudy or raining for four months, like it happened this year in the Sunshine Coast? This podcast episode was recorded in spring 2022. And for the ones that don't know, in Australia that year we experienced tremendous floods that affected the whole East Coast. Yeah, mold is an issue. I mean, the whole East Coast of Australia would agree. You know, after that much rain, you get in, inside your home, you get mold, you get musty clothing, you get bed sheets coming out of the linen cupboard smelling not clean anymore. And We've got issues with um, road access, you know. Mm. Sometimes we've had to 
chainsaw our way out to town because in heavy rain you get trees falling over the road, things like that can happen. Um, one of my neighbours lost a lot of her topsoil in the last floods. She's done a lot of swale work and stuff and it was all undone by the, all that heavy water. Mm. Yeah. What about solar energy? You have to rely on fuel? Yeah, look, there's no doubt about it. Like Alex is the mastermind behind all the systems here. So I do feel a sense of vulnerability when he's not able to be on top of the repairs of that stuff. If, you know, he's the one that designed it, he knows it inside out and back to front. So it's hard for anyone else to come in and do maintenance on a system that's created by one person. Mm-hmm. So it's not something you can standardise. Like solar systems are made of different components. So we've um, updated our solar system as we've gone along and added components, taken things out and tried new things as they become available on the market and become affordable. So it's, again, like everything else here, it's a very organic process with mm. having enough solar power. Yeah. Sometimes it's tr- it's it's complex with the teenagers as well because their power needs increase all of a sudden. Mm. So I guess in the early days we were trying to figure out our capacity and how much solar power we would need for our growing mm. family, trying to anticipate what they're going to be into in their future, how much power are they going to need mm-hmm. in their lives. And, you know, luckily some of these components for solar power are really coming down in cost so yeah. and available secondhand quite a bit. And I feel it's a bit about choice as well. Like I've noticed that in winter you make a fire. Mm. So your resource is the wood. So that's for heating, yeah, and we have a lot of access to fallen timber. So that seems sensible. So, But again, you know, there's emissions from a a combustion stove, creates smoke, and we try and minimise that as much as possible by having the wood cured and dried and just being mindful of the amount of smoke coming out. But that's... That's a choice we made because we didn't want to have gas heating in, in the house. Yeah. But we do have gas heating for hot water and for cooking. Mm-hmm. So you um, still rely some, on some things that are outside? Yep. yep. And if there's no sun for four days, as you mentioned earlier, we've got a petrol-powered generator for backup mm-hmm. to boost the system. So mm-hmm. that's, we, yeah, we definitely use fossil fuels, but we try to be aware and minimise their use. Use consumption yes. as much as you can, yes. so it's possible. Yeah, and living out of town means we use more petrol for cars to get places. Yeah. So, well, yeah. you don't get out much. Like, I don't, but the kids. We were talking about this the other day. Yeah, mm. yeah, they so want to go places. You live here. You have the bush. You have the creek. You have mm. the sun. You have rain. Mm. You have plants. You have trees. You have animals. I mean, what's your goal in life? Do you? I like to get out to go in the ocean, for example. Mm. That's one of my main reasons that I go out. But th- other than that, yeah, social life. Yep. A bit of fun. That's all you need. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, my needs change over my life, definitely. Yeah. And now I'm quite content just to observe how things are, uh, are going on the property and interact with it as it evolves. Everything's constantly changing in the landscape. So I, I really get a lot from just being still here. Yeah, I'm quite happy to be solo on the land, recluse as much as possible, just really absorbing it and enjoying it. Have you ever felt like surrendering, like from living here? Yep. Yeah, we, we, in the early days it was quite a common thing amongst Alex and myself that we felt like maybe we'd made the wrong decision. And I'll tell you what fixed it. We had a beautiful old cast iron bath that had been on the property since before we got here. And we decided that what we would do is we'd turn it into a fire bath. And so we set it up in the middle of the veggie garden and we filled it up from the hose and we lit a fire underneath. And the first night we ever had a fire bath in the veggie garden, we realised that 
everything was going to be okay. Mm. It was a real moment for both of us going, look, no matter what, we can make it work. This, you know, and again, it's like simple things like hot water under the stars at night was just like a life changer. So we knew that we would be able to, um, yeah, find satisfaction in all the hard work. Which opportunities have you lost from being here? Or you do you ever wonder how your life would be if you wouldn't have made this decision? No, I constantly feel grateful for the amount of space we have around us. Like I, um, I guess it's natural to compare your life with others around you and the lives of my girlfriends and the other families that we know. But I try to avoid thinking like that as much as possible and just um, focus on what I want and what we want as a as a team, as a family. Yeah, it's not been easy the whole time. Um, and there's a lot of hard work going forward always. Mm. So, and that's where, you know, having you come and be part of the property has given us that extra labor force and those extra muscles and extra pair of hands. And yeah, generally it seems that we've identified that there's a labor shortage in a lot of rural properties in Mm. probably the whole world over. So trying to get my teenage kids involved in production on the land is probably never going to happen, but they might come back to it later. (laughs) I'm not going to push it. We always talk about that. Like I was Mm. raised in a city, lived in a city my whole life, Mm. like probably 25 years of my life. And now that I'm living here, I'm like, I'm not coming back to that life anymore. Mm. I don't know how I'm going to feel, but I feel it's natural as well. Like if if I was raised here, probably my goals would be a bit different. Like I would like to go out and go to the city and yep. go to the skate park and play games. and mm, That's very natural. Yeah. yeah. So my kids want all of that stuff from out there as well. So yeah. we just stay relaxed about it and let them make their own call on things like that. If they're, they're, They've both been my two elder teenagers. They both work and they choose how they spend their money and they spend it on junk food usually. There's <laughs> 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 freedom for them because they've the got youngest. their own money. It's what they're learning. It's, it's not about the quality of the food for them. It's about being able to choose. So. I'm remembering when your youngest son said, I've been trying experiments, your experiments so long. I just want ice cream. My cooking. <laughs> Experimental cooking. Yeah. <laughs> just wait till those, uh, yeah, the taro and the cassavas all pumping. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. We don't want that. We just want chips. Yeah. As long yeah. as you can fry it, that would yeah. be yeah, I don't know what they're going to take away from this lifestyle as children as they go into adulthood, but, you know, we're doing the best we can for them. For I think what, they're great kids. Yeah, I think they're I gonna, think they'll probably appreciate it more yeah, in a couple of years. You need context, definitely. Yeah. yeah. You need to see the rest of the world as well. Let them fly, go out, mm. have fun. Mm. They'll appreciate it later probably. They probably appreciate it now. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah, Ginger's brought a lot of her friends around here for nice, quiet, you know, Bushdorf type parties a mm. few times and that they, her friends love it. They love coming up here mm. to the quiet and they've got the space and they can set up tents and stay over and it's different to what they know in the nearest town. So, yeah, maybe. What's your favourite thing like day by day? Like if you wake up and you have to choose one thing of the day, they say this mm. is just priceless. Uh, probably the bird life. Yeah, I think that's the thing that I tune into the most with pleasure. I think it's the the variety of birds in this environment. Any favourite? Bush turkeys, 
how I love them. <laughs> we love them. <laughs> we have a kind of Best like, teacher. Yeah. Love-hate relationship with yeah. bush turkeys. Yeah, we're finding it really hard to grow food with bush turkeys. Brush turkey. Yeah. Both. Both. Both names used. Nah. Uh, yeah. I like pythons and wallabies. Mm. Wallabies are pretty pretty easy to love, but the pythons are pretty special as well. Yeah. Mm. Haven't seen any yet since I'm here. Mm. But they'll come out soon. So we're getting into spring. Mm. So they'll be around soon. Yeah. What's next in your life? Oh, learning uh, as much as possible about um, fungal networks and um, syntropics and um, soil building and anything related to permaculture and sharing, working collectively with people doing those things. You yeah. enjoy that? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And what about here, this property? Actually harvesting food and then having the time and capacity to process it and distribute it, eat it, store it, share it. So still feels like the mission to grow some mm-hmm. needs to then come full circle to have that yield coming in regularly and being ready to process it and having mm. the space. Because I can tell you kids are getting older, mm. so they're probably yeah. going to give you more time, free mm. time, yeah. right? yeah. Yep. Do you have any artistic project in mind? Um, I'm waiting for the next thing. Yeah, I think I'm between things. Mm. I've moved through a lot of different types of creative discipline. It's always been something, but it, the, the medium changes. So I love weaving. I love natural fibres. Um, but I'm not sure what the future holds. I think I just I just want to keep doing what I'm doing now for, for the next little while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Mm. So we do we do basically if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, we like to talk about nature. We like to tell stories about people that have been facing challenges through nature. And we like also to commit to an action. So if you're gonna get like an hour talking about nature, we unshoot it and film it and record it. I find that it's really cool to actually do something about it as well. It just helped Jane in this case. So we were building a compost facility for human you today, this morning, which you can check in on the web page, which is ysdm.au and check what we did. So basically we build this compost stage we used some soil that was composted already to plant some veggies and some plants in a garden bed which is located where the grey water system goes so I feel is I like what you're doing here I love it and I'm really happy and thankful to be here because I feel that the power of people not only comes when they're in community and doing things together, but also what they do with their lives. So what do you do in your house? What do you do with your waste? What do you do with your pool? What do you do with your plants? You know? And I struggled so much during my whole life, during my young life, 
because I wanted to help nature. I wanted to do things for nature. And I felt like I wanted to save the world, but the world's too big for me to save it on my own. And I was just protesting and yeah, it was hard. But then I feel like this is what I want. I, I want to do something similar to this. I'm doing it, but I want to keep doing it. Just focus on whatever's around you, the people that's around you and the natural system that is surrounding you. Even if you live in the middle of the city, what do you think about that? Do you feel like people that live in suburbia or in a huge city could contribute as well? Yeah, there's always things you can do. Little steps, you know. I, th I think fanaticism is misplaced. I think you just need to do what you can in any given circumstances. Yeah, small incremental changes. Is there any message that would, you would like to tell to someone, maybe to women or people in your situation? Now's the time. I think the human you are really is important to spread the message about how we think about waste and what we do with waste. It uncovers all of those um, misguided ideas that we have about um, there being another somewhere over there for our things that we want to discard, landfill, poo, whatever. And I really think that if we can deal with our shit, literally on a daily level, it's a huge step in the right direction for changing our headspace and becoming restorative on our journey through our life on earth. I think we need to see ourselves as restorers of the land and not takers of the land. So I'd really like to model best practices for dealing with human manure and having that be a really easy, functional part of more households. Mm. I'd like to see that happen. That's so true. I think that's really important. Like we focus so much on what we eat. Mm. And we have these rituals around food and we give so much importance on what we eat. But then we discard what we actually get from that food and we clean from our bodies. And I think that's important. Focus on what we shit in as well. Mm. Like if you take, if you deal with your shit, mm. that's really important. I can see the kookaburras flying and just playing. There's one there. They've been playing the whole yeah. day. They're hunting behind you over here. Too. Yeah. <laughs> They're watching. We like to ask our teachers, our mentors, when they come to the podcast, if they want to share um, a page or a web page or whatever you want people to follow or help or check out in the internet. Is there anything you would like to share? Yeah, I keep uh, the Veggie Patch Consultancy page updated with my gardening projects for various mm -hmm. different things. And that's a That's it. So it's the Veggie Patch Consultancy. Okay. So if you look at that way in Facebook, it just show up. Mm. Yeah. We'll have all the links and on the descriptions, on the webpage, on social media. So yeah, just tune into that. And yeah. I would like to also remind people that this is like a really independent project. And if you would like to help us produce more episodes and tell more stories, like these ones, and share them. Uh, support is always appreciated. So follow on social media, subscribe to our channels, subscribe out to our Spotify uh, podcast. And yeah, just get in the page and just check it out. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, Jane. You are a legend. 
Thanks, Maori. Thanks yeah. for all your help. Yeah. Thank you. Environment Art Stories is a Yo Soy del Mundo production, written, produced, and directed by me, Mauri Badra. The sound is edited and mixed by Ives Bongioani. The main music is created by Hamza Mas. Graphic design is by Mari Arnold, who you can also hear at the beginning of the episode. Nering Gale recorded the sound for this episode. Shay Ryan Douglas is the camera operator of this episode. Special thanks to Alex, Ginger, Rory, Milo, and the whole Starlight community. To check out the action videos, jump on our website, ysdm.au. Please keep in mind that this podcast documentary series is an independent project with no private or public grants or funding. Your support counts, so please follow the podcast on your chosen listening platform and visit ysdm.au to subscribe or donate. Donations are much appreciated as the funds collected are used to produce future episodes. With your help, we can tell more stories.